Hey, good morning, Pillar Church. How are you guys doing? Yeah, prepped for the typhoon? Well, I'm ready to be off work tomorrow. So our scripture reading today is from the book of 2 Samuel. We'll be reading chapter 18, verse 31, through chapter 19, verse 8. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well with the young man Absalom. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the Lord was, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, uh, and as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that you would then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Vincent. I am one of the pastors here. In fact, I'm the lead teaching pastor here. Um, now, that may come as a surprise to you because you probably haven't seen me that much, especially if you're new. Uh, that's because for the last month, uh, my family and I, we've been traveling in the United States. And let me just say, it's good to be done with the traveling. Uh, we're Really happy to be home, and I am uh, excited to be here with you this morning. I'm really looking forward to the text that we're going to be in together. And, you know, I really just want to say that we are blessed as a church uh, to have the group of elders that we do. Uh, these guys are wise, compassionate, capable men. And, of course, we've seen that over the last four weeks. They are able to handle the Word of God with... Uh, skill and conviction and faithfulness. Uh, so we really are blessed as a church by the elders that God has brought in to serve us. And, you know, if I would let these guys keep going at the pace that they are with preaching, then I would find myself without a job quickly. Uh, so here I am this morning, and uh, again, I'm happy to be uh, with you, to be in our text 
in 2 Samuel. Now, before we get into the text, just want to quickly recap where we've been in this series. Uh, we've been looking at the life and heart of King David. So we've been looking at significant events in David's life. And we've been looking at some corresponding psalms that David wrote while those events were happening. So we have a glimpse of his spiritual life at the time. We've seen David's rise. We've seen his victories. We've seen his faithfulness. We've seen the incredible love that he has for God. And we saw the, the covenant that God made with David. David lived an extraordinary life, and extraordinary promises were made to him. A promise that David's descendant would sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. A promise that would shape the entirety of redemptive history. But with David's rise, we've also seen David fall to some incredible depths. David uh, coveted another man's wife. He became an adulterer. And after that, he became a murderer. And unfortunately, what we see in 2 Samuel is that David is never really quite the same after this. The glory days of the Davidic kingdom have come to an end. David's kingdom is not the same after his fall. Yet... God remains faithful. At the end of 2 Samuel, um, as sort of a summary or recap of David's life, the author of Samuel uh, places in chapter 22, David's song of deliverance. So if you guys want to turn with me there, I'll just read a couple verses from David's song of deliverance. Okay, scripture looks back on David's life and it summarizes his experience with this song. Here, starting in verse 2, David says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now, the one word that's overwhelmingly repeated in these verses is the word, my. David says that God is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Now, David, like I said, he lived an extraordinary life. But his life was also filled with hardship. It was filled with pain and suffering. For years, David was fleeing persecution. People that were close to him betrayed him. Even his own son tried to take his life. And yet, at the end of David's life, the author of Samuel can summarize it and say that God was a faithful God to David. David can say, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. For anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, there is a true and genuine sense 
in which we can say that God belongs to us as our God. And as one of the pastors here at Pillar Church, it is my prayer, it is my hope, and it is my mission to help you see that if you trust in Jesus Christ, then you can say with the psalmist, even through the midst of hardship and suffering, that God is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our text this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and God, we ask that you would uh, humble our hearts before you. Lord, would you help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and uh, the things that we want, Lord? Would you turn our gaze, turn our attention to your glory, God? Help us to see that in your presence is everything that we could ever want. Father, help us to fear you, help us to honor you. God, we love you, and we ask that you would be here and at work this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're in the final big chapter of David's life, and that is the rebellion of Absalom. Um, now, I don't know about you guys, but in my experience as a, as a believer, as a Christian for the last 16 to 17 years, I've been in Christian circles, I've been in a lot of churches, and I feel like we hardly ever talk about Absalom. The only thing we ever hear about Absalom is that he was super handsome and had uh, really long hair. But this is a really significant portion of the narrative of 2 Samuel. It covers about six chapters. It is um, like the last significant event in David's life, the escalating tension between David and Absalom and the eventual death of Absalom. So it's really important. And today the main thing I want us to see is that Absalom's rebellion is really an intentional pattern that God has placed in Scripture to help us understand the gospel more clearly. Like we see this throughout the Old Testament, we see this throughout Scripture, that God has provided intentional patterns for us within the biblical narrative that prepare us for the arrival of His Son. They shape our expectations for Jesus. And what I want us to see is that Absalom's rebellion follows in that pattern that helps us to see more clearly the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now, we're also going to see some of David's struggles as a parent. Uh, we're going to see some of his failures as a parent. We're also going to see his heart and his identity as a father. Now, every like we know that every parent is shaped by their children. The identity of every single parent is shaped by their children. And so for me, for example, um, I didn't become a parent until my first daughter was born. Like that's something I wasn't, and then I became a parent. It significantly shifted my identity. 
The birth of a child is an event that drastically changes people. The birth of a child. And I would also argue that the death of a child uh, changes people in an equal kind of way. It is an incredibly significant event in the lives of people who lose their children. In um, his short book on the gospel, The Message of the Gospel, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he highlights an author named Nicholas Wolterstorff who reflects on the loss of his son. And this is what Nicholas Wolterstorff has to say about the death of his son. He says, now if anybody wants to know who I am, that person must learn that I am a man who lost his son. Right? It significantly affected who he is. That single event. And if we know anyone who's lost a child, we've, we've probably been able to see this in their lives. I can speak from some experience here. This kind of relates to my story. Um, a couple weeks ago, I told you all that my first wife, she passed away in a car accident. She was 25 years old when this happened, and I saw how this one event radically changed uh, the lives of her parents. It completely altered their, the things that they looked, at, looked for, like their, the things that they wanted. It completely shifted and altered their identity. Um, her parents actually uh, live here on Okinawa. Their names are John and Sook Velker. They're longtime members at Coza Baptist Church, so maybe at some point you'll have the opportunity to hear their story for yourself. Um, but the man that I want to talk about this morning, he's a friend of mine from my old church in Florida, uh, where I, I used to serve. His name is Dave Tulls, and I want to try to paint a picture of this guy, um, he is a faithful, longtime member at this church in Bradenton, Florida. Uh, he's an older guy, uh, really talkative, really nice. Uh, he sings in the choir, but he also has a hearing aid, so I'm not quite sure how that works, but it, it seems to at least. Uh, and he's also the groundskeeper of this church. So he's doing all the landscaping, mowing the lawns, taking care of the trees, making sure the trash is picked up all sorts of stuff, and he really puts a lot of pride and effort into his work. He, he loves this church, and he does his best to uh, keep the, the church property as clean and nice-looking as possible. Dave always smells like a lit cigarette. He loves fishing, and, um, you know, being so old and living in Florida for so many years, his, his skin is kind of like the texture of a handbag. Um, but I love this guy. He's kind, he's genuine, he's gentle, and he's the kind of member that any church would love. Now, I used to see Dave all the time, like several times a week, because uh, we lived in a small house on the church property, so we'd see him around all the time. And several years back, about three, four years back, um, Dave's oldest son um, died due to some heart complications. It was completely 
unexpected. He was about my age, so mid-30s. Completely unexpected. And this tragedy, of course, shocked Dave. It shocked our community, um, shocked the church, and it just radically altered Dave's identity. And, And everything that he did, everything that he did was shaped and affected by the death of his son. And I can remember that uh, before this happened, when I would see Dave around the church property, I would think to myself, well, there goes Dave. Man, he's doing so much to take care of his church. This is really a guy, this is really a man uh, who takes pride in his work. But after that event, whenever I would see Dave around the church, I would think to myself, there's Dave. He's a man who lost his son. There are few things that reveal the heart of a parent like the death of a child. And here, specifically, in this tragic text that we're in, we see that there are few things that reveal David's heart like the death of Absalom. Now, like I said before, Absalom's rebellion and his eventual death is a pattern that helps us see the gospel more clearly. And what I hope to show you here this morning, what this text ultimately points us to, is this truth, that the death of Jesus Christ reveals the heart of the Father like nothing else does. And that is essentially our main point. The death of the Son reveals the heart of the Father. Now we have three points that will help us, help unpack this for us. One, we have Absalom's sin, which is a pattern for our sin. Number two, the justice owed to Absalom, the justice owed to us. And three, David's heart and God's heart. So as we're going through this text this morning, uh, again, keep in mind, try to see the gospel in your own life. Try to connect the pattern for yourself. All right, so looking at point number one here. Absalom's sin. Absalom sinned against God in a grievous way. He sinned against David uh, in a number of ways. Absalom did several things that explicitly warranted death in the Old Testament. Uh, the first thing that he did is he, he killed his half-brother, which his, his half-brother wasn't any sort of moral example. Um, also did quite a lot of wrong, but Absalom, he, he basically planned his brother's, his half-brother's assassination for about two years. He waited two years for the perfect moment to strike to kill his half-brother. Now, once this happened, Absalom was exiled. Uh, instead of putting him to death, David exiled him, so he was cast away from the king's presence, but eventually David brought him back into the kingdom. Now, once David brought Absalom back into the kingdom, Absalom began to conspire 
against his father to kill him. Absalom coveted the position and the kingdom of his father. So he spoke falsely about his father and he conspired against David in order to kill him, in order to ultimately end David's dynasty and establish his own dynasty. That is what Absalom wanted to do. He wanted to end the line of David and start the dynasty of Absalom. And we see this with particular clarity in 2 Samuel 16, verse 21. Now, I am not going to read this word for word, but if you're following in your Bible, you will understand why. So, 2 Samuel 16, verses 21 through 22. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Take your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom sinned against his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. So this was not only a despicable and disgusting thing to do, but really what this is communicating is that Absalom considered David's name to be worthless. He wanted to end the dynasty of David and start his own. And because he despised the name of his father, it also meant that he despised the promise that God made to David. If you remember, God promised David that one of his descendants would reign on God's throne in his kingdom forever. One, of, one from the line of David would be the eternal ruler and king. But Absalom thought this promise was worthless. In fact, he despised this promise. It wasn't enough for him to be part of God's family. No, he had to be the one who was king. He had to establish his own dynasty. It had to be his rule. It wasn't enough for him to be a part of God's family. God's promise was not good enough for Absalom. And as we think about ourselves and the things that we want, how often is God's promise not good enough for us? God has promised to us the riches of his grace and kindness in Jesus Christ. He has promised us riches that are great beyond all comparison. But so often, that is not good enough for us. We see what others have, so we covet. We covet money, we covet pleasure, 
We covet a certain lifestyle and we take it upon ourselves to take matters into our own hands, to, to grab, to take these things. We do what is right in our own eyes to try and take these things because God's promise is not good enough for us. So the pattern that Absalom's life shows us is really that we are just like Absalom. We are just like him. Haters of God, unsatisfied with his rule and his kingdom. And really, Absalom's life follows the pattern of the whole human race. You think about Absalom, Absalom sinned against his father, so he was exiled. He was cast away from his father's presence. Then grace was extended to him. Absalom's life was prolonged, but ultimately Absalom had to answer to justice. He had to pay uh, for the sin that he committed against his father. So Absalom died. It's just like Adam. Adam sinned against God. He was exiled. He was cast out of the garden, away from God's presence. His life was prolonged, but ultimately the wages of sin is death. Absalom received the justice he deserved. And that brings us to our second point. Again, Absalom deserved death. There are a number of laws in the Old Testament that he broke that explicitly called for his death. And, of course, David couldn't just ignore this problem and hope that it would go away. Absalom made it clear that it was either going to be him or his father. So let me point to just one text that we can read together that that explicitly calls for Uh, the death of Absalom. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18, here in the law it is written, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones." So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. At this point, Absalom is like way beyond this, what's called for in the law. Yet, it is so clear that David wanted to make a way for peace and reconciliation with his son, Uh, When they're preparing for battle, when David's army is preparing for battle against Absalom's army, David repeatedly tells the commanders of his army, he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. 
David wanted reconciliation. He wanted to find some kind of way to put away Absalom's sin. Yet David was unable. He was willing to do something to save his rebellious son, but he was unable to do it. The greatest king in Israel was not above the law. And we see ultimately that the law is measured out against Absalom. Absalom is killed, and the people, the army of Israel, uh, raised a great heap of stones over his dead body. They're treating him just like they would have treated a pagan king, a pagan enemy. Absalom's actions had really hurt the people of God. He was an enemy to them. The king wanted to do something about his son's sin. He wanted to make a way for reconciliation, but he was not above the law. He was under God and a servant to the people. David faced the dilemma. He loved his rebellious son, but he was also commanded to uphold Justice, And we see this dilemma come out with some particular clarity in 2 Samuel 19, verses 5 through 6. We read this earlier, but just to refresh our memories here. Here it is written, Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased." To be a king that upheld justice, to be someone who loved his people and someone who loved justice, it meant that Absalom's sin could not go unpunished. Now, when we think about the death of Christ, specifically why Jesus had to die, you know, like why couldn't God just pardon everyone? He's God, right? Why can't he do that? Well, the reason for that is because God is just. If God did nothing about those who hated him, then he would not really be loving those who were faithful to him. Now, it's not like justice is some standard that, that is set above God. That's not why God upholds justice. No, God upholds justice because justice is an expression of his own perfect character. In order for God to value his own goodness and glory, he has to love justice. If God did nothing about the unjust, if God did not punish sin, then he would be an unjust judge. 
not worthy of praise and glory. Yet for the sake of God's own goodness, for the sake of his own glory, he upholds his own justice. David was unable to address his son's rebellion. He was unable to do something to reconcile his rebellious child. Yet the death of Absalom reveals David's heart with some clarity. We see how he loved those who hated him. It reveals the extent to which David was willing to go to save his son. Which brings us to our final point. In, at the end of 2 Samuel 18, David says, when he hears of Absalom's death, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David repeats this lament three times. Despite Absalom's grievous sin against David, despite his hatred of David's name, David gladly would have traded places with his son. He gladly would have died on behalf of his son. And I think every single parent can understand this. We would instantly trade places with our children. It wouldn't be like we wouldn't give it a second thought. Even if they despised you, there is a visceral, overwhelming instinct to love and protect your child. So I think we can understand, we can even sympathize with David's response. David's heart, his identity, was revealed in the death of his rebel son. His heart to love those who hated him. It revealed the kind of king that he was. What he would trade to save the lives of those who rebelled against him. Now like David, God the Father, our almighty king, loved a people who hated him. Like David, God wanted to reconcile rebellious sons and daughters. Yet unlike David, God's love was not powerless. In the death of God's son, we can glimpse, we can apprehend the majestic magnificent, unfathomable depths of God's love for his people. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, one verse here, uh, verse 32. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know how we talked about how the death of a child redefines your identity as a parent? Well, that is exactly how God chooses to identify himself and name himself right here in Romans 8.32, when he calls himself, he who did not spare his own son. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Nicholas Wolterstorff says, that if anybody wants to know who I am, that person must learn that I am a man who lost his son. If we want to know who God is, which is what Paul is talking about when he describes him as the God who, we need to know that he is the kind of God who defines himself in this unique way. I am the God who did not spare his own son for you. Paul here speaks about the wonder of the atonement from the perspective of the Father. What did our salvation mean to the heart of the Father? Not sparing his own son. That is what it meant. That is who he is. That is what he does for you. That is the kind of God he remains for you. God is the kind of God who is so selfless, so loving, so full of grace upon grace that he did not spare his own son to save us. What did our salvation mean to the heart of the Father? Not sparing his own son. That is what it meant. So if you have ever doubted God's love and generosity, if you've ever doubted his glory as king of all, doubt no longer, because this is how you know that our God is a great God above all other gods. What did our salvation mean to the heart of the Father? Not sparing his own son. Like David, God was willing to save rebellious sons and daughters. But unlike David, he was able, he was capable to deal with the weight of his perfect justice. In the eternal counsel of the triune will, God the Son, out of his love for the Father, chose to accomplish the Father's will through his sacrifice. And God the Father, out of his love for the Son, chooses to not spare his own son so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Because of this, we can say with David in his song of deliverance, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Church, there is nothing that proves that God belongs to you as your God. Nothing proves that more than how God defines himself in light of the death of his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are humbled before your greatness and your glory. God, we are so privileged to have you as our God. And Lord, I pray that you would nurture and deepen the relationship that each one of us have with you. God, I pray that we would turn from our sin, God, that we would be continually repenting, continually turning away from our sin and turning to you so that we may know you more, love you more, so that we may rest and live in the assurance that you are the God that did not spare his own son for us. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.